0: Good afternoon, everyone. This is Daniel Paris, host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Richard Robb, teaches uh, uh, economics at uh, Columbia. He is the author of Willful, How We Choose What We Do, just published literally today. And this is uh, in, uh, for those of you who may be listening uh, a little bit later in November of 2019, published by Yale University uh, Press. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show. Great to be here. So your your book is very, very interesting, uh, and I think it will come as a, not so much a relief, but uh, to some degree a relief for those of us, both market participants, academics, former academics, who have been caught in the crossfire uh, between the uh, predominant paradigm in, in economics for most of the uh, last several decades, the Chicago homo uh, uh, economicus uh, rational actor theory. And then the challenge emerging over the last couple of years and reflected in some some Nobel Prizes more recently of behavioral economics. But behavioral economics is as interesting and frankly, far more entertaining than the classical uh, theory is. Nevertheless, doesn't, doesn't really uh, pretend to be or uh, can't really stand toe to toe. With the classical theory what what you do is come up really with a third way that's my term not yours uh, and I just wondered if you, you know have you give an introduction to how you ended up between um, rational actor theory and behavioral economics and and with your again what I'm thong, calling the third way but I, I don't want to put words in your mouth
1: sure you know I went to Chicago and my PhD in economics from there in the Early nineteen eighties, which was, you know, whatever you think of the school, it was a magical, wonderful time to be there. I took price theory, microeconomics from Gary Becker, and list of long names of luminaries. I I learned, you know, at the time I was um, drunk on economic theory and homo economists. I felt that the world was revealing its hidden order to us, that we could apply the assumptions of stable preferences, optimizing behavior and markets and equilibrium, and we could explain everything that we saw around us. And behavioral economics was just emerging at the time. And, you know, we I wouldn't say we scoffed at it, but we didn't think it added much to the picture. In some ways, I'm still not not convinced that it does well, that was, yeah, well you
0: may not have scoffed at it, but several of your professors certainly did, including Merton Miller among others, sure, the emergence of behavioral so economics
1: they did but I, I would like to just i think he was in the business school um, mm-hmm. in economics we there was not much behavioral economics in in those days there's there's a little bit more now uh, because there are you know, the homo economist is 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 incomplete. Uh, I, I don't think many people would dispute that these days, and that's the alternative that our profession has to offer. Um, but you know as I, I left um, academia after I graduated and went out and worked in the world of finance, and I was, you, know, never completely at ease with the idea that that, that was the whole story. There were just things that I saw around me uh, uh, as I considered my own inner life and my motivations for my own actions. I I didn't think that that those two were were sufficient. You know, even now I, I was teaching been teaching a class at Columbia, uh, a seminar for about twenty students called Foundations of Individual Choice, and. beginning, I'd I'd ask the students, why why are you taking this class? And they'd say, well, you know, I don't think of myself as a fully rational calculating machine. So I'm interested in behavioral economics. And I think, you know, that's kind of sad that that, that's all we got to offer, that you're trying Mm -hmm. to optimize these preferences that you have. And sometimes you do a good job and you're rational, but sometimes you fall victim to these cognitive biases that are left over from the ancestral environment. And maybe you can learn about them and Im- improve your ways and then, and then become fully rational if you, you know, and act in conformance with, with the models. And you know, I, I, I am not a heretic here. I think that that is a powerful method for understanding human behavior. And, uh, but my, and I, in my book, uh, Daniel, I, I classify those as, as, the, sa- as uh, the same type of action. I call it purposeful action, where we have preferences over different outcomes. We know what we prefer. If we optimize and we do a good job with our information and our resources, that's rational choice. If we misfire as we try to optimize, that would be behavioral. So my, my second way are the types of actions that uh, are, I call them for itself, that are not dictated by preferences, where we're not choosing because one thing is better than another or trying to get the outcome that would best satisfy, satisfy our, our, our desires. Uh, we're not engaged in a trade-off of this for that, but we're just acting in a willful way, in a human way that defies those types of trade-offs.
0: And I think that it's, you know, you're, by doing so, you're opening up. And I think it's important for uh, particularly those who are interested in finance and economics who who are going to take a look at this book. That's a philosophical statement in many ways. And your book is wonderfully rich in philosophical treatments of um, issues of decision-making uh, it's a bit of a, F- a philosophy 101 course as well as uh, kind of a, a, a basics in, in economics choice. So uh, there uh, there aren't too many major Western philosophers who are not referenced in in your account as you, you know, as you, as you build out this for itself model.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think um, the existentialists have a lot. Yeah, I, I draw on them quite heavily, the early ones. Uh, you know, Dostoevsky, in Notes from the Underground, said much of what I wanted to say. He said, you know, he called, uh, he called this the tricky profit, that one profit. It's no trick to take this profit and try to add it together with all the others, but that's the whole bane of it, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, it doesn't fit into the list. Now, when he said the list, he was referring, I believe, to Jeremy Bentham's philosophic calculus, which is you know, similar to the modern economist's utility function. You have 14 pleasures and 12 pains, I believe, and you try to get the most, the strongest pleasure with the longest duration and you multiply them all together. And that, that tells you how well you're doing. It's kind of a extreme version of a modern utility function but dostoevsky was observing that some things just don't fit in the list sometimes people just want to do as they like and that doesn't mean we have to, we've we've gone wrong or that we have to beat ourselves up over it and we can identify those types of activities that don't fit into the list you know i wanted to call the book tricky profit but my editor who is always right when i disagree with him and pick the name willful, which which I now recognize as better. But the tricky profit are, are those profits that rational choice or behavioral economics or purposeful choice just can't help us understand. And if we try to shoehorn those sorry shoehorn those decisions into one model, we get concoctions that are unsatisfying and very complicated.
0: Now it, it it's uh, also the case that even within the economics uh, profession, you find evidence of this. And I, I'm a big fan of Alfred Marshall. And for those of you who are more current finance, kind of reaching way back to 1890, the first uh, kind of comprehensive account uh, principles of economics. But you have a wonderful uh, excerpt. Uh, which you know captures uh, what you're trying to do and, and how athletes or horses delight in the strain of 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 the match and then you know throughout the book you you provide lots of other examples where neither rational actor theory stable preferences nor irrational actor theory which is allowed to adju- be adjusted to come up with the rational actor theory just explains human behavior people sometimes are just in it for for another reason, and that seems to cover, frankly, a lot of human behavior, and and uh, but isn't covered in the, in the classical model, and um, that that's where I think the book really uh, adds value by going into how beliefs and character and acting on character are, uh, you know, the human experience, which the algorithms or the anti-algorithms just aren't really good at at capturing.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. And and Alfred Marshall, at the end of saying, you know, that that sometimes a, a business person delights in the strain, he he adds, and the allowance required to be made for the for these other um, motivations in some cases will be so great as to alter perceptibly the general character of our reasonings as economists, and that was forgotten in really starting probably in the 50s and 60s. 1950s and 60s. Because the 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 existence of this other yes, realm yes, yes. that not everything could be the it was well known by, you know, Thorsten Veblen and Frank Knight Chicago characters in fact.
0: Yeah. So let's let's take matters back a little closer to uh finance investments and uh you have uh, some, some very good material on uh, how investors might think about this third way. It's for itself in the decision-making process about uh, investments. Uh, you gave a great example of uh, David Ricardo and British bonds uh, that uh, – do you want to just provide an example of that as, as a sort of a uh, a man on the spot, which is a is, uh, uh, Hayek's phrase. It's certainly not modern portfolio theory, but you want to tell the story of David Ricardo and, and British bonds.
1: Yeah, that was a story that Richard Zeckhauser also tells. Um, in the time of the Battle of Waterloo, um, David Ricardo um, bought uh, British government bonds, betting that the British and their Prussian allies would win. Or if they didn't, that the bonds wouldn't go down as much uh, as, as perhaps some thought. And he actually got Malthus to join him on this uh, speculation. And then Maltus chickened out right before the battle and sold and took, uh, took his profits. Um, but he made actually you – know, Ricardo made – a huge fortune in speculating and a lot of uh, a substantial part of it was derived from this one great trade i'm surprised that it's not better known the characteristic of this trade though is you know what what model could ricardo have used for this what what's the probability that the british are going to win this battle there's there's no probability it's not a meaningful thing it only it depends on all these particulars that are one-time events It requires human judgment. There's no algorithm that's going to tell him what to do. And I think more generally, at the times when you can apply to rules that you can identify, that you can test against data, Mm -hmm. that apply best practices, whatever, those rules would have been understood by others and the opportunity would have been arbitraged away by now. So it's only the one-time events or the events that have that character of being different from other things that look similar to them.
0: Hence the man on the spot notion that you, you borrow from, from Hayek, that there's just a certain intellectual advantage to, as it were, being there and a type of knowledge that academically is just really hard to come by.
1: Yes. And the, the man on the spot has a kind of knowledge of time and place and Details that can't be abstracted, and Hayek was interested in it because you can't send it to a central authority, and it was a justification for capitalism. I'm interested in it also because you can't within an organization, within a within a business like the kind that you and I both both work for in our in our day jobs. I also work in, in investment management in addition to teaching at Columbia. We deal with organizations, with investors that have their own governance structures and their processes. And if the murky realm where the money is to be made involves this kind of information that is very particular and therefore by its nature difficult to communicate to others and to pass along, how does an institution seize an opportunity that is difficult to talk about. It's difficult to convert into rules. Maybe not always easy to justify based on past experience or, or based on theory, but based on the knowledge that a man on the spot, or I should say person on the spot, is able to say, well, yes, not, not that, but this. This is what we're going to do because this is going to make money. And I can tell you my reasons, but you could probably give reasons on the other side but my my experience tells me this one
0: and the, what's interesting is the way that you present that argument it goes counter to something that's kind of common knowledge but may not be common knowledge and it's it's basically that individuals are often in a better position to make those Man, have that man-on-the-spot advantage and, and a decision than the large institutions, which are constrained by multiple levels of checking and counter-checking, as well as rules-based algorithms. And uh, again, you know, Ricardo made a decision on the spot, as it were, and there are others who, in more modern circumstances, will, will do the same. But, you know, it's not always the case that you're at a disadvantage against the uh, the big institutions. At least that's how I interpreted your point.
1: I. And and I believe that because the individual doesn't have the resources to develop a new drug, to develop a commercial office building in a spot that they, they, they think there'll be demand for it or to make a complex investment in derivatives when the opportunity is right. But what the individual does have is the ability to coordinate within their own mind and to make a deeply personal decision. And then to hang on in a way that is always hard for an institution.
0: Yes. and When facing losses and shareholders and multiple levels of compliance, again, from our day jobs, we were all too aware of that. Right.
1: Everyone, no matter who you are, has a provisional hold on your resources. And you may buy something because it's half the fundamental value, half the price of what it's worth. But at one point, it was three quarters of what it was worth. And it was also a good investment then. And on the ride down from three quarters to fifty percent, it's very painful. And your investors, your managers may say, "Oh well, we're uh, when when things are tough, we we double down. We don't we don't panic. We're we're in this for the long haul." And when they say those things, I'm sure they believe it, but they may not know themselves. And when times really do get tough, they say, "Well, yeah." Of course, I was the same person who said I was in it for the long haul, but now things really are scary.
0: You have a great, great story, uh, and don't give away all of it, but just, a, a, you know, you have an application of this for the offshore wind farm that you decided to finance right (laughs) during the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, which, you know, nerves of steel. And again, only a human being could have navigated that experience, not a theory of uh, rational actors, either acting irrationally or rationally with stable preferences and, and, uh, the kind of the guideposts of modern, uh, theory. Do you want to provide just some highlights of how your own kind of individuals prevailing over institutional, uh, weight, I guess might be the best word for it during the financial crisis.
1: Yeah. you know, I tell, I tell stories, um, both institutionally and, and individually, the one about the wind farm, the offshore wind farm that we built, I told with maybe more candor than my business partners might have liked. But you know, if someone's going to take the trouble to read a book, they ought to get it full strength with 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 the bad as well as the good. I'll, I I won't um, spoil the ending, just to say that life is not. A Disney movie, and neither, neither was this. And <laughs> it, it got it, it all got very personal uh, for the investors, for the stakeholders, for the suppliers, and and for us.
0: And you know, it's well, it makes it I, makes for a gripping story. By the way, it's uh, so kind of <laughs> talking about choice theory can be dry, and uh, your the real life examples that you sprinkle throughout the book really help uh, uh, bring it, bring it to life. So, um, it's, it, 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 helps it may have been painful for you, but it helps me.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. And, and I will say just the wind farms did get built in the end. So. Which is some, a good thing. Out of
0: it. So if we move on and kind of expand just beyond, uh, the, um, finance and specifically investment implications of kind of for itself decision-making you, you do make a, a uh claims i mentioned earlier in the interview you're you're philosophically inclined uh and you know you do reach out beyond matters of economics to to point out that there's kind of a for itself behavioral element in altruism that neither rational actor theory or even irrational actor theory behavioral finance can explain that there are non uh pareto efficient uh, and you're going to explain not me pareto efficiency public policy situations where again it's not purposeful choice, but, uh, uh, you know, for another reason. And again, I do like your, unfortunately, I like your trolley story as well as the Cicero story. I think I like the Cicero story better. Uh, so you've got altruism, you've got uh, public policy. Perhaps the most interesting one where you take this for itself decision making is on time and how people <laughs> change their minds. Life is a journey, not a destination. And I, uh, it, when we were talking before we started the interview, you said, you know, you're not you, you went to Chicago, you learned a lot there. You still think uh, preference theory has tremendous uh, usefulness. Nevertheless, I'm going to put words in your mouth and you can then reject them. Um, the Chicago theory fails when uh, preferences are not stable, when people change their minds. And uh, uh, you have a nice chapter on that. And I hope that your study of Japanese is, is progressing slowly, uh, highly inefficiently. To no point whatsoever, but I, uh, I, I hope it is. Thing. Do you want to just kind of co- ho- cover how you moved or, or how you would highlight or summarize, you know, this going beyond straight um, investment decisions to, which is your home base, shall we say, to for self decision making beyond investment issues?
1: Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you, I would say, for such a careful reading of my book. And yes, I I agree with with all that you say. A few words on on altruism. There are moments when altruism is completely uh, purposeful. We might might be selfish altruism. We might do a favor for someone expecting another favor in the future. uh, Or we might adhere to social norms. And at a certain price, we could break the norms if the benefit were high enough. So all that lends itself to purposeful behavior. And and I think, you know, very deep care, we'll say in Chicago, interlocking utility functions. When uh, Becker's example, uh, a mother and her child, where the care is so intense that the mother optimizes as a single unit. And um, so will we'll trade off resources within the family, labor and leisure so that Uh, nothing is wasted so that the marginal benefit to the child times the value that the mother puts on the child at this moment equates to what other any other ends to which she might put her income
0: just for for those of you who are listening uh, uh, gary becker really went the furthest in uh quantifying uh kind of rational actor theory uh, even for things like love and (laughs) uh maternal relationships and uh it it's harder now to accept that but it was written at the time and as as you've just summarized it but it's it's not i i don't believe that that's uh uh the current standard of of the art uh i hope we've moved beyond that we we
1: have but some insights that he made that were novel at the time have become second and become widely accepted so some of his great contributions may seem less novel to us but and we 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 shouldn't. Uh, it's not fair to him to deprive him of his contribution. Just a bit of an aside. Take take crime as an example. It was his idea that crime is just another occupation, and a, a criminal is not a special kind of person that needs a different model to understand, but that uh, they have uh, that they. It's form business. About the it's future. just business. It's just business. <laughs> Yeah. And if the wage in the non-crime sector goes up, they, they, they'll they go straight, they'll invest in human capital. And, you know, if the probability of punishment goes up, they'll do less of it. If the um, punishment goes up and the probability of detection stays the same, they'll do less of it. There are, there are insights there that now seem, seem obvious, but they weren't obvious at the time. So I, I just... Would would like to say that on his behalf, but also agree that there are limits to how far this stuff can go. All right, so so we talked about you know at the at the extreme end of the mother and the child, and at the uh, casual end of a person doing a favor for an acquaintance, we can think of all that as rational. But in the middle, I would argue that there are gestures that. Can't that don't yield to rational choice. Just to take an example of the Good Samaritan in the biblical paradox. He's walking along the road. He sees a, a man who's beaten. He stops to get him on his feet. All that perfectly rational. He would do it every time. He cares about other people. Um, I don't think that presents much of a puzzle but then the good samaritan takes this random man to an inn pays the innkeeper for his for to take care of him for for a time why lavish all this extravagance on one random man why not look for the next why not uh look for the next most needy person and uh optimize the use of the resources. Because if the Good Samaritan tried to do that to everybody he saw, he'd run out of time and money. He wouldn't get very far at all. So he's not optimally benefiting humankind in any cohesive way. And yet, do we want to look at him and say he's fallen prey to some type of one of the list of 200 cognitive biases, maybe the salience bias where the, the uh, the matter right in front of him takes on disproportionate significance in his eyes. I don't think that he's, he's, and and if you pointed out to him, Oh, uh, you know, you, you, you've got this bias, you better mend your ways. I don't think he would say, Oh, thank you for pointing that out. Now I'll move. I'll, uh, I'll leave this, this, this beneficiary, this person that I'm helping, I'll leave him alone. I don't think that would be fair. We, we, can respect what he did and admire it, but we can't say that it's better than the other activities that he might have engaged in. So he's neither rational nor irrational. This is a gesture that is for itself. You can't say that it's, it's good. You can't say it's bad. You can just say that he did it. I, so I call that mercy. Um, this is just a gesture that stands for itself. And just to, if I can, just to complete the taxonomy of altruism, there's a, another kind of for itself that also can't fit with the purposeful realm. And there, An example would be a woman who sees her husband fall into the river. And she is not going to think, well, what's the probability that I can save him? multiplied by the present value of all the benefits that I'm going to receive from keeping my husband alive, minus the chance that he'll save himself without my intervention, and then minus the chance that I'm going to drown, multiplied by the value that I attribute to my own life. She jumps in to save him because it's her husband who she loves. And To try to add more to the story, to try to appeal to some other reason, would be what a philosopher Bernard Williams called, one thought too many. So the gesture transcends all the other, the whole schema of the various uh, ingredients into our rational choice. All the costs and all the benefits are just smaller than that. They're set aside, and she jumps in to save him. And the fact that it's her husband who she loves is 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 good enough for this purpose. And there's nothing more that you can say. She may not even care for him in the rational sense. She may make him miserable beforehand and may do things to may, may nag him, may not. Um, he may And may go back to doing that after she saves him. But this one act um, is not an optimizing act. It's just something that happens. So... I think that's another another kind of act that doesn't fit with with rational choice, and we go to things like the oh the trolley problem you have to take one of its iconic versions i'm I'm sure all your listeners know it the choice is
0: do I focus a little the fat a little norm? a little it's a little gruesome, so just prepare yourselves. Right. all right. <laughs>
1: So we'll a trolley up. is coming. Fat man is standing on the bridge. There are, in one version, there are five people on the tracks, and the only way to save them is to push the fat man onto the tracks where he'll die and save the five people. There's an enormous literature on this, and there are a lot of different variations to try to tease out our moral intuitions about life and death and whether it's better to, you know, if the uh, if you see the fat man's going to slip on a banana peel, do you try to save him? Do you do you, or remove the banana peel so he's saved, but then the other five people die? Um, and well, hundreds of papers on on this have been written. And economists will say that there's a bias towards inaction, where if he's slipping, you'll let him slip, but you won't push him I think it's such a primitive way of trying to see, to see our our moral values my argument is that this is a merciful act and it's a gesture and you can do as you like you can push him and you cannot push him. and you know if they're more than five people or if the fat man is the villain who uh, caused this whole thing in the first place you might be more inclined to push you don't really know because you out my guess is neither of us know ourselves well enough to know exactly what we would do. I would imagine I wouldn't push. most most people wouldn't. but you know it would it would depend on the circumstances. but i there's no set of rules in my view that will tell us
0: what to do, and that absence of a set of rules is the key that uh, for choices that we make when there is no none of the clear guidelines apply. and you you have a, a less gruesome example from from Cicero which is you know again decision making when you have w- what do you want to do almost under extreme circumstances and and if if someone's watching as it were or not watching let me let me let's keep moving on though just cuz we're uh, respectful for time uh as i mentioned time is a huge issue and the fact that uh utility curves change or preferences change is not part of the standard model but it is part of the Life as we live it, and it's part of the cereal box about the journey, not the destination. And the existing models just don't handle people changing their minds very well. And that does lead, I think, into there. There has to be a different, you know, uh, whether it's for itself or something else, but a different explanation of of people's uh, decision making. And uh, you open up, you know, you don't necessarily resolve that, but you do open it up quite nicely.
1: Thank you. You know, I say not only can people change their mind, but they have to change their mind. I argue in the book that it's impossible to set out a path for what you would like to do. And even in the absence of new information, with perfect certainty, a person who's thinking clearly, who's not involved in some weakness of the will, will, if they were to commit to a path, about what to do in the future. If a demon were to come and say, okay, you have all these, I mean, you, you could live it up tomorrow, uh, work hard the following day, so forth, um, give you a list of all the different paths you can take and ask you to rank them. Okay, you You could do that as a rational person. You should be able to. But then once time passes, the path that looked good to you yesterday will no longer look so good to you today. And that means that It doesn't mean that we have a pathological relationship with time, in my view. It just means that paths over time are not the sort of thing that we have preferences about. So we need a new kind of way to understand them.
0: And you know you're, the four itself is a, again you're not claiming it's a theory of everything, but it's a uh, uh, at least it's a, a starting point for a very important discussion uh, I think uh, about that very human experience. Speaking of human experiences, playing football in Central Park, I my note was because uh, w- one of your chapters about this is about the importance of play. We circle back to the strain of the athletes and Alfred Marshall, but uh, it's the famous Wazinga comment about homo ludens, and we have that versus uh, homo uh, economicus. And my joke was, and again, you probably won't agree with this because I'm maybe more strident than you are, that uh, neither Merton Miller nor Gary Becker ever played flag football on Central Park. Had they ever done so, they might uh, have been a little less rigid uh, and, and allowing for a little bit of the playful nature of, of human uh, nature. We need challenges is one of the points that you make. We need to strain, and we do it just for itself, not for some other other purpose um so you know i don't, I don't any ha, have i misstated you too much there
1: you haven't misstated me but i feel honor bound to say that i gary becker was a friend of mine and he was a very warm person in real life and uh it's uh i would not be surprised you know i he's he's gone now and um i would have i think he would have liked this book and i think he would have agreed with a lot of this i mean who, who am i to say but it's uh if if, if i don't know i i don't know Merton miller and I, I i can't speak to him but yes i more generally sometimes when we're sporting we're playing we want to overcome some authentic obstacle or challenge that confronts us it's not because it's better than one or the other, and we're not constantly reevaluating it, trying to reassess, do we stop, do we switch to something else that we would more prefer at this moment? Time, when it flows, a flow can't be, there's not a moment where time stops. We order the possible alternatives, decide which one we like the best, and then start up time again. When we're in a flow, we're committed to a certain process, and we are – the best analogy is sport or game. We're the sporting man in part, but not completely. So life is complicated. I think it's two things. But why does it have to be just one thing? And that's where Gary Becker would say it is just one thing if you were to ask him. And I agree with you on that characterization.
0: Well, and again, uh, no disrespect to him. He's incredibly – uh, uh, uh great achievements and, and so forth uh and thoughtfulness it's just it was um the an extreme application of the chicago model and i do think we are both intellectually and from a public policy perspective moving a little bit away back towards the mid middle the pendulum has swung back a little bit more towards the human side humanity side rather than the the uh the, the complete rational actor side so and i think that's probably fairly healthy uh, let's, let's kind of, you know, just summarize here. And I, I, would just use one of the lines, uh, from your own book, uh, you know, focusing on this willfulness that, that can't really fit into the models that acts of will, uh, can't arise out of passive calculations to satisfy preferences, or they would no longer be acts of will. So there's, uh, hopefully not at the risk of a tautology, but at risk of pointing out how humans actually live their lives, there is just an element of just because in there and, uh, you're book, Willful, How We Choose What We Do, is, and just published today, uh, does a, a great job uh, f- uh, describing that. Uh, Richard Robb, thank you so much for being on the show. Last question is, uh, and it's often on the New Books Network, we want to end. What what I know since your book is published today, you're probably not thinking about your next project. You're probably just thinking about getting this one out the door, but uh, what's the next project?
1: You know, Dana, you mentioned the, um, I think you called it the cereal box of uh, life is a journey. Yeah. I remember hearing that as a little kid, and it just puzzled me. It's like the, or the, the, the purpose is the journey. Like I thought, how could that be? The purpose ought to be the purpose. And it took me, I don't know, 40, 50 years <laughs> to figure that out. <laughs> it took me 10 years since my book was due. Um, at the press in july of 2014 so this one has taken me my whole life Uh, i don't know if i've got another 40 years for something like this so i i don't have another project right now
0: i have my well that that's fine because i mean in theory this is this book although it is relatively slight and easily well written and easy to read. Uh, it it is not a 800 page, uh, tome on philosophy. So, uh, that I think will be welcomed by readers. It is nevertheless quite open-ended. And uh, I think many readers will react as I that, uh, Hmm, that's worth thinking about. So it, it may not be the next project. It may be for readers or for you just, you know, continuing to meditate over these themes.
1: I agree with that. Thank you,
0: Richard. Rob, thank you so much for for uh, being on a new books in finance.
1: What a pleasure.